<coughs> so uh, there was a specific theme or area that I wanted to address tonight, and then <coughs> partly based on some of the questions last night and some of the interviews, etc., uh, it feels important to also weave other stuff into that based on <coughs> based on basically what you guys are going through and the diversity of your responses and, and etc. Uh, so I hope that it weaves in gracefully to what I'm trying to say and uh, it might feel like I'm spiraling around stuff and <coughs> I hope that's just okay. I also hope that it's not too long. Um, but clearly, clearly, uh, ev- everyone in this room, uh, myself included, has different background. Different background uh, in terms of personal history, different psychological background, different practice background, different exposure to different teachings, all of that, all of that. Uh, and not only that, a, a variety of predispositions as well. Predispositions in terms of practice, predispositions in terms of view and attitude. Uh, approaches to practice, all, all that, all that. <clears throat> so what that means is that everyone's having a different retreat, in a way, and the teachings are landing in different places and the practices land in different... and, and all that changes. Um, so it, it somehow feels important to... Or, or that's obvious, it feels important to state it and uh, try and address all that diversity somehow in, in, in uh, the teaching. <coughs> so if we jump off from there, actually... Um, Attitudes, views, uh, preconceptions that we have uh, will profoundly affect our life. Profoundly affect our life. They, they in a way, color and shape what we experience in life every day. So on a very gross uh, level, but also on, on a very, very subtle level, and we don't even realize it's going on. <clears throat> so attitudes, views, preconceptions affect life and... Uh, the way life unfolds, and also practice, and the way practice unfolds, deeply. So, many in this room are from the insight meditation tradition. Um, and in that tradition, I'll touch on this a little bit, I think, but in that tradition, and uh, some Zen traditions, uh, two things get communicated, generally speaking. Generally speaking, a person either whether it's explicitly said or somehow imbibed, a person generally uh, walks away with two, two uh, meanings of, of something. One, uh, or two concepts. One is the concept of bare attention, and uh, the other one is a kind of idea to put down thought, and put down meaning let go of thought, but also in a way to denigrate thought and the value of thought. Uh, and seeing thought as a, kind of a problem in a way, or uh, being suspicious, at least, of its value. And so, um, both of those you know, the concepts or strands in the teaching can be communicated explicitly or implicitly, and they're both really useful, actually. They're extremely useful. The concept of bare attention is very useful. Um, but, like everything else, has its positive side and its, and its potential downside. So this bare attention that we talk about, especially in the insight meditation tradition, this kind of capacity to, of attention to meet the experience very, very simply and directly, uh, or 
so it seems, um, rawly, nakedly, that, that generally takes people years of practice. I mean, years to actually be able to do that and kind of get what that's about and feel in oneself as, oh, yeah, this is beautiful. This is something really lovely to do that. Uh, the simplicity of it, the directness of it, the vitality of it. And the sort of one talk, in, in a way that's um, a foundation for what we're doing here. So very much a foundation uh, for what we're doing here. And uh, it takes time to get that foundation. It takes time to, be, to feel like we're really able to meet experience. Lovely experience, difficult experience, difficult emotions, all that. It takes time. It really takes time. We develop that. And in doing that, in trying to, trying to bring bare attention to experience, we uh, there to some degree, definitely, we go underneath concepts. That's kind of what the teaching of bare attention is about, underneath the veil of concepts of experience. Um, but in a way, is it enough? Is it enough? And I've brought this up before. Is it enough? Are we going underneath concepts enough? Is going underneath concepts really where we're trying to head to in terms of emptiness and understanding? Sometimes with paying bare attention to experiences, you've noticed, all of you, I think, most of you from insight meditation retreats, etc., before, is that what it brings is a kind of real vividness to experience. When we meet it more directly, uh, free or to a relative extent, free of the veil of concepts, there's a brightness. Some people come into interviews and they say, the grass seems greener, the sky looks bluer, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's precious. But part of the potential downside is, is that experiences, uh, appearances are becoming more vivid and in a way can actually lead to this uh, accepting of appearances even more. It's that like appearances become primary experience becomes primary. And so there's this word in the tradition, suchness. Everyone come across this word, suchness? Uh, I'm not exactly sure the Sanskrit is tat-tata, something like that. But um, originally, if you read the original text, this word suchness was synonymous with the word emptiness. It has come to mean, in the tradition, the exact opposite of that. The exact opposite. So when generally teachers talk about suchness, or you read about it nowadays, and I remember <coughs> as a teenager reading um, Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception, and, and uh, Heaven and Hell, and those kind of books that one reads when one explores in certain ways as a teenager. Um, uh, and um, and he used it there, and this suddenly, you know, what was it? He was taking mescaline, and whatever. And the, the vividness, the beingness, the thingness of things was startling to him. Their 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 essence of thingness, and he was calling that suchness. And that I don't think he started it, but that that use of the word started pervading uh, the teachings, etc. But originally, it meant completely the opposite. It meant the absence of that. It meant emptiness. The suchness of a thing was the absence of its thingness, of its essence, of its beingness, etc., etc. Now, there are reasons for that that have to do with the way Buddhism spread from India, particularly to East Asia, to China and Japan. Um, but, though I find it fascinating, I'm not going to digress. Uh, I actually think it's very important, but I'm, I'm not going to go too much into it. Um, well, actually, just to say a little talked about this balance of the middle way and there's a sense of uh, kind of negating too much. We'll revisit this. Kind of g 
going too far with the emptiness into kind of nothingness, etc. And the possibility of, um, in a way, not doing that enough. And, and the swing, individually, there's a swing, but also within Buddhist traditions, and in one, one tradi- within one tradition, the historical swing. Too much, not enough. And the kind of reactions to that. And the culture in Eastern Asian countries was, was unlike India, where, where the philosophical milieu that the Buddha grew up in had a real strand of transcendence in it. The... the, 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 the aim of a lot of spirit was actually transcending the phenomenal world, going beyond, experiencing something beyond the senses that's transcendent to that. That was completely absent in Chinese and Japanese uh, spiritual milieus, and much more about the uh, isness of things, the, f- the moment of experience, the, the, the uh, directness of the senses, the earthiness, etc. So when, when Buddhism moved to China and Japan, actually rejected it at first for different reasons that was one of them so it had to find its way back in and then uh, in a way they took the Indian thing perhaps as going too far and all of which is good because this swing is actually healthy but I don't know if that makes sense it actually it profoundly influences the way the Dharma has arrived to the West because we've actually inherited a mixture in, in this room there's a big mixture in, in the insight meditation, is certain a tradition is certainly a mixture. So that kind of thing, we think, well, that's not really significant. I'm not really interested. I wouldn't have been interested in this at all a few years ago. But teaching so much and bumping into people's views and attitudes, one actually, where does this come from? And uh, anyway, so we can have a notion with of uh, bare attention, etc., of a kind of purity of perception that somehow it's possible to. Uh, Aldous Huxley, scrub the doors of perception till they're clean and they see uh, reality as it is, things as they are, the world shining in its isness. And this is this, and that's, that's it. And in that, the appearance can seem like a solid fact. So it's, it's the appearance, and that's what we're trusting. And so, I, I will review this later, but... Um, uh, I'm not saying this always happens, I'm just saying uh, it's a potential way that things can unfold. And so sometimes one can have uh, a, a sense of something like the talk last night, it was a very intellectual reasoning, etc. And one, given the choice, one doubts the reasoning and not the appearance. And appearances seem almost uh, unquestionable, and reasoning seems questionable and unbelievable. So that's, I'm not, I'm not saying it happens all the time, but that's a potential uh, reaction or, or, or thing that can come up. So sometimes we hear in the teaching, and again, it's kind of communicated, it's almost like, don't think about experience, just experience, just experience. And in a way, um, what that can kind of direct was is this faith in, in what we see and what we experience. Uh, however... There's a problem there, and I, I've, I've voiced it before. It's that we sense inherent existence woven into our perceptions. So, if I'm trusting appearance, they, appearances come with a sense of inherent existence, to a degree. And uh, we, the, the delusion is, is in the seeing. It's, it's fundamentally a problem. The problem is deep in the perception in, in the mind, in the perception. 
I said this before too. I don't feel, and again, it's just an opinion, but I don't feel that we will actually uncover the full depth of understanding of emptiness just trusting appearances and, and experiences. Um, it's very difficult to, to reach something like the lack of inherent existence of awareness or the fact that there is no real present moment or um, this process that we were talking about yesterday, that actually the process too and the elements that make up the process and the time that the process seems to happen in, none of that is real either. Very difficult if we're just trusting this bare attention. Something in experience will always appear to have inherent existence. Something, it's the, it's the nature of, actu- of actually experience, of the default stream of experience. And if it's not explicitly uh, kind of made clear to us or, or us to ourselves that this or that lacks inherent existence, pretty much I feel we can safely assume that we're assuming inherent existence in things. So, me, yeah. Can you define inherent existence, please? I'm struggling to yeah, okay. you know how you're using it. Yeah, so um, I, I, this year I didn't define it till late, but last year I didn't define it till later in the retreat. This year I defined it right at the beginning, but it's actually quite difficult to understand what it means. It means um, that we have a sense that things exist independently of the way we're looking at them. That, in a nutshell. I mean, there's different ways of saying it, but that's, that's basically So that's the sense we have in the word. Now, all this, bare attention and um, the kind of relegation of thought, etc., can, can lead to a, a number of uh, outflows, one of which is we can also, in addition to what I just said, kind of have a sense of that the Dharma is, the point of the Dharma and where we're going is to kind of go with the flow of things. That's, 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 and again, we'll come across this, we'll read it, etc., it will occur to us. And that things are impermanent, and therefore, obviously, because things are impermanent, we should let go, and go with the flow. Um, that, to me, is not the same as awakening. It's, it's really not the same as awakening. It's, it's minus quite a big chunk of understanding there. And there's a be- and many of you have probably read this novel by Siddhartha, uh, called Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Have you come across that? Mm-hmm. Be- beautiful novel, you know, and I mean, re- I found it profoundly moving. But his big kind of epiphany is sitting by the river watching the flow, you know. And there's a sense that is the kind of fulfillment of understanding and, and going with the flow and letting it be and kind of not uh, reacting so much. Um, one of my teachers, Ajahn Tanisara, Ajahn Jeff is his other name, wrote a fantastic essay. Uh, it's, I'm sure it's somewhere on the web. It's called, I think it's called something like The Roots of Buddhist Romanticism. And it's really, really uh, worth reading. And he, he um, uh, un, un, uh, exposes some of the kind of ways that, in this case, Western notions uh, that happen around the Romantic uh, philosophers and and later actually have found their way into Western Dharma. Very big is going with the flow, etc., like that. And that's actually not uh, what's most radical in the Buddhist teachings. So this going with the flow can actually be given a kind of romantic twist, and it has a real heart pull. You know, Siddhartha by the river and that kind of letting go, and it's very poetic, beautiful, it can also kind of be interpreted in a kind of grim kind of, basically everything's changing and 
deal with it. Learn, learn to get on with it, you know, and don't, don't try and create anything more fancy than that. So it can kind of go romantic or it can go grim existentialist kind of uh, deal. Um, but e- either one, that to me, doesn't seem qu- like it's quite got the fullness of, of what the Buddha uh, was trying to communicate. And to just say that, although it's, it's, it's a strong thing to be able to do that in the face of impermanence, it's, it's not enough for the Buddha to have really questioned whether he wanted to teach. We could uh, say something like that, write them on one of those uh, self-help calendars or whatever that you peel off today's thing is, let go with the flow, you know. Nice, but uh, so emptiness, as I said before, is not the same as impermanence. It's saying something much more and much deeper and, and much more difficult to understand. So the Buddha uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya says, uh, the Tathagata is another name for himself. The Tathagata, when seeing what is to be seen, does not construe an object as seen. He does not construe an he does not construe an unseen. He does not construe, construe means create or conceive, does not construe an object to be seen. He does not construe a seer. And then the same when hearing, when smelling, tasting, touching, when cognizing. Whatever is seen or heard or sensed and fastened onto as true by others, one who is such, another name for an enlightened person, one who is such, among those who are self-bound, would not further assume to be true or even false. Having seen well in advance that arrow where generations are fastened and hung, quote, I know, I see, that's just how it is. There is nothing of the Tathagata fastened. It's not hooked anywhere. There is nothing of the Tathagata, nothing of, of one who sees that way fastened, hooked. Hooked, fastened. Yeah. With no notion of subject, no notion, not even a notion of a momentary subject, no notion of subject, there is no grounds for I know, I see. With no notion of object, of that which is known, no notion, no grounds for, quote, that's just how it is. Clearly, this is pointing something way beyond the concept of impermanence. Um, Would you... Again, the source. The source. Anguttara Nikaya uh, in, in the chapter of fours, number 24. Um, so, with a contemplation of impermanence, another word for anicca, the word that we usually translate as impermanent, is uncertain. Things are not certain. Anicca, they're not certain. And that also leads to something, there's something very, it's a be- very beautiful level of teaching here. Things are uncertain. Therefore, uh, we can't be in control and, and uh, kind of opening to that. And we can't know what's going to happen. But again, uh, this notion of not knowing uh, has... Again, it, it's one of these notions. So what I'm addressing tonight is our relationship with views and attitudes and, and where that might not be fully conscious or where they might be coming from. So, notion of not knowing, beautiful, and letting go of, I need to know, I need to know, I need to, beautiful. But, like all things, can it go too much, and has a notion of not knowing in the Dharma been over-elevated? Oh, it's like, it's almost like a place that we want to arrive at, is not knowing. Um, 
And it's interesting. I remember years ago, I taught a work retreat up in in, in Scotland in the Highlands, and um, and we would have Dharma discussions almost every day. And at one point, uh, one of the uh, retreatants said, uh, and he's actually a friend of mine, he said, "Why do we always have to come to a conclusion when we have a Dharma discussion?" Which is a f- fair enough point. Um, but it can seem that knowing or arriving at knowing blocks a sense of openness and a sense of possibility. It can seem that way. Um, It can also seem, and I'll return to this, that when there's knowing, the heart closes a little bit. So I'm just pointing this out, and I'm just wondering whether those things need to go together. Uh, For the Buddha, it's it's a very different project. If you open the Pali Canon, you don't really get a sense of him elevating not knowing as something to kind of go for and arrive at, a sense of not knowing. It's quite the opposite, quite the opposite. And he's very big on knowing. And what do we need to know? What are we trying to know? How can I know? How can I know what I need to know? And actually working towards that is quite a different, um, again, uh, paradigm. So in... in uh, you know, communicating, teaching, <coughs> teaching some things. One of the problems, and the Buddha stated it as well, is all this is difficult to understand. Certainly teachings about emptiness and dependent arising are difficult to understand, difficult to explain, difficult to teach. You know, Another possibility is that, uh, and again, it's very common in, in, in Western dharmas. I just want to highlight a few possibilities. We get a little bit enamoured, again, of a notion of simplicity. And uh, uh, that that's somehow inherently right, or the right way to go. And just wanting to flag these things. And um, ideas that can be expressed quickly, or zippily, kind of can gain a lot of uh, momentum and weight, and kind of authority that way. Ideas that can, because they're expressed quickly and easily can easily get repeated very often. And you can just throw something out, go with the flow, or da-da-da-da-da. Um, and maybe ideas that also have an intuitive pull, and they seem simple because they resonate with our intuition. So, danger, danger, and danger is a strong word, potential pitfalls wherever I go. If... Uh, I overemphasize or I dwell too much on complexity and intellectuality and precision, even as a teacher, as as teaching. There's obvious dangers there. We get caught in the mind and this and nitpicking and that are obvious dangers. But there's a danger the other way. There's a danger the other way of uh, of, um, oversimplifying, getting attached to simplicity and in, in, in so doing actually to imprecision wrapped up in that. So for instance, um, and I, I will retouch this again, um, an equation of emptiness with impermanence or an equation of emptiness with oneness. Um, not quite the full, the full deal. So t- I find t- teaching trying to teach this stuff, that to be precise is, is really hard work. I find it very, very hard work. It's really hard work to try and communicate things as precisely. Um, uh, it, it's a hassle, to be honest. It's, it's a real hassle. Um, but to me, that's what 
it feels to me the most uh, the thing that's most in alignment with my sense of integrity. Um, but it, it, to be honest, it's it's more work. It's more work to kind of s- say a lot in detail and say it's not, it's not and, and actually carve things out that way. Um, I I could, and sometimes I do, and other teachers do as well, actually talk about emptiness, etc., in a much, much, much simpler and more open way, much more poetic way, much more kind of suggestive way. And I know uh, that, actually, that's a more popular way of teaching it. It tends to... uh, People get less upset, often, (laughs) and less angry, and, uh, and actually the heart is more touched when it's communicated that way. And again, I'll revisit this later. Sometimes in trying to be really precise, something, for some reason, happens in the hearts of the listener that actually it doesn't feel so open as if one just kind of said something much more vague and poetic and left it quite open. But in that openness, there's actually openness to different interpretations. And people pick up very different meanings uh, given the same sort of vague, open language, and not quite, and actually talking at very different levels and depths of understanding. So that to me is, and I don't do it every time, but that to me, why it feels important to actually try and be really precise. Uh, but in that, there can be sometimes a loss of this uh, kind of more open sense or mystery at times, I think. So. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave bits out. But um, the one thing I said last night with the reasoning sort of analysis, one of the difficulties that we, I think, almost everyone will encounter is is the decisiveness of it is troubling. That second step that I was talking about that uh, if something existed inherently, it would have to exist like da 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 da. That's troubling, you know. Uh, that kind of really, really deciding, yes, that's really true. Um, and in a way, it feels like we're pitching up a battle with what seems to be real, in terms of appearance, and reason, and can really uh, rock the boat inside and, be, and create a lot of unsureness. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, because in a way, sometimes I feel, and I... I I also read this in other other <coughs> authors that um, it may be some children you encounter. If you have a, you know delightful children, sort of begin questioning the appearances of things and the reality of things, and it's sort of very free spirited. And somehow, sometimes for some people in the course of life, uh, that questioning of appearances actually gets a bit um, trodden on, subdued, repressed. So with, uh, as I said last night, you don't have to pick it up at all. It's really, really fine not to pick it up. Um, But sometimes a person can think, how could it possibly be the case that the conceptual would lead beyond the the conceptual, that the conceptual mind would lead to something that's non-conceptual, which is where we're trying to go. There's a sutra called the Pile of Jewels Sutra. And he says, uh, Kashyapa is talking to this guy, Kashyapa. Kashyapa, it's like this. 
For example, fire arises when the wind rubs two branches together. Obviously, a very dry climate. Fire arises when the wind rubs. <laughs> All that happens here is a bit of drops of rain fall. <laughs> For example, fire arises when the wind rubs two branches together. Once the fire has arisen, the two branches are burned. Just so, Kashipa, if you have the correct analytical intellect, uh, a noble one's uh, faculty of wisdom is generated. Through its generation, the correct analytical intellect is also consumed. So it has a way of eating itself. It eats itself, done, done rightly. So there can be, and again, talking about uh, attitudes, tendencies, etc., views, opinions, there's, there's a whole range of views about all this stuff, all this stuff, and, and that's probably healthy. I think it is healthy. But one of the tendencies can be a desire to abandon concepts that may be too early. I want to, I want to get rid of concepts. You guys okay? You mean too early? Too early in the, in the meditative process, or too early in one's process of practice. Too early in one's path. Too early in one's path, uh, or too early even in, in a, a sitting or a meditation. But certainly, what I really mean is too early in the path. Yeah, too early in the path. What will happen if I abandon concepts too early? Almost without a doubt, I will just revert to my default concepts of what reality is. I will just revert to my default. And I can think and have all, again, the romanticism of abandoning concepts. But sooner or later, and probably sooner, I just go back to my default concepts of what's real. So, sometimes you see this in, in uh, practitioners or, or this tradition, or all this applies to other traditions too, much of it. Um, someone says something like, everything's empty, uh, all things are empty, there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to do. Um, and at some level, that's actually true. You know, Ultimately speaking, you could say that's true. But if there's no translation of that understanding into the details of our life, if, if the kilesas, the greed and the aversion, etc., are still there, then one's using a kind of language of completion and having gone beyond. And it's not, it hasn't gone deep enough, it hasn't gone subtle enough. So what we're interested in, one of the things we'll keep revisiting on this retreat, is that notions and concepts construct our experience of objects. Notions and concepts construct our experience of objects, okay? Um, but that is a very, very, very subtle process. In other words, just dwelling uh, without thought is not the same as, as being free of concepts and notions. Okay? I was really interested in kind of worry about... Yeah, if there are no thoughts in the mind, there still may be assumptions operating. Yes, and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So there's sometimes I, you know, I read translations of Zen texts, and I really wonder. I, I don't because I don't know Chinese or Japanese at all, and I wonder if it's a mistake in the translation, or potentially a misunderstanding, or it's just that Chinese isn't rich enough, and not drawing a distinction between because sometimes it says uh, let go of thinking or let go of the thinking mind. And to me, when I read it, it seems much more uh, deep and, and helpful thing to say would be let go of the conceiving mind. And just what Bill was talking about, it's like, I can be free of thought, and yet there is still the assumption, the conception of 
a self, of a world, of time, of objects, of awareness, etc. And I f- can feel very free of thought. Um, you mean, by that you mean thoughts arising? Thoughts, yes, thoughts arising. arising. Yes, and so thoughts can be free, I can be free of thoughts arising, any thoughts, but still quite a lot of conceptuality going on. And that, I'm calling it conceptuality, I'm not sure if it's the right word, but that's what I'm using. It's a whole level of assuming, uh, assuming reality to things as a given, taken for granted. And those concepts and notions actually build our experience of objects and they construct our experience of objects and selves and awareness and time and all the rest of it. Um, so concept, what I'm calling conceptuality and perception go together. They go together. They're woven in together in this way. Very, very subtle. So we're going to revisit that big time on this retreat as a concept. But just generally speaking, does that make sense? But they're not they're not thinking, no. So I can be free of thought and still have a concept, a sense of me and a world and time passing and awareness of objects and all of that. And I'm not thinking about any of it, but it's there as a, as a sort of uh, base strata of assumptions of reality as, co- as concept, but not, I'm not, nothing's churning, nothing's moving in the mind on that level. It just occurred to me, so if, if you're in a walking room and mm-hmm. your mind is quiet, you hear the bell and you go for the door. Even though you're not thinking door and so on, yeah. you know what the door is. Yeah. You have all kinds of assumptions yes. about what happens yes. when you turn it. Yes, and so on. absolutely. And, and so, and what's on the other side? Yes, yes. So all all that's operating, and I'm saying there's e- it gets even subtler than that. So sometimes in meditation, one second. So sometimes in meditation. Um, you know, it drops down, you don't even think about doors. The whole sense of everything just goes kind of blank. And I would still say there's still subtle conceptuality going on. Still a sense of time, still a sense of awareness, still a sense of me somehow, even if me has no history, no personality, no nothing, and a world of objects. So this is like, keep using this uh, concept of a spectrum. Spectrum. Spectrum of conceptuality. And it's very, very, very deep and subtle. And that's why the Buddha had really second thoughts about teaching all this. So it's sort of, is it like um, the mind sort of in neutral? The, cl- the clutch is depressed and it's sort of, no thoughts are arising, mm-hmm. the sort of the yeah. whole apparatus is yes, still there. exactly. So the mind in neutral is not really in neutral. It seems to be a neutral, and to, to a degree it's disengaged from a lot, but lo- as I keep using this kind of spectrum, there's still a kind of uh, subliminal, uh, levels of subliminal sort of engagement and assumption and conceptuality going on there. They're actually constructing our experience and our reality. We, we will revisit this in a, in a lot more uh, subtlety and depth. Um, <clears throat> but just as, as, a, as a point now, the point is, I can say, oh, I should throw out concepts, Unless I have access to that degree of subtlety and, and an actual ability to see that operating and let go of it or question it, my idea of letting go of concepts is just a, a pipe dream. You know, it's not. Uh, it won't. It won't address that really deep level. When can people still recognize doors as doors? I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I just think that perhaps an important to me. It's it's an emotional kind of thing. Well. Those early concepts of self, which are so deep laid, that's that's what I think is very difficult to perceive and uh, uh, relax through. 
Um, but I mean, you you still see, you know, as far as I know, people still under, no matter how enlightened they are, still recognise a door as a door. They, yeah. they don't just walk into a wall. You yeah. Know? Okay. Important. <laughs> so, so a couple of things there. Um, this goes back to a question Nick asked a few. Uh, I was going to say a few weeks ago. Feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, Lost sense of time. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, Nick asked at some point. Um, uh, so there's two things in what you just said, Bill. One is what we can call about psycho- a, a level of, this goes back to the conversation itself, a level of what's hidden on a psychological and addressing the psychological level. So, yeah, we, we grow up in our families, we have these experiences and these ways that it didn't quite get met, etc., etc., or it was difficult with our parents, our siblings, school, and that can bury uh, concepts and assumptions uh, deep in the psyche on an emotional level that are very difficult to uh, uh, expose and, and heal and release, definitely. But again, I'm talking about a spectrum here, so it goes much, much deeper than that. Uh, even two things, I say the most basic building blocks of what we take for granted. What? Space, time, things, objects, and awareness. Even those. Now, you're quite right. Uh, of course, uh, someone awakened or someone who's realized the emptiness of all that can still uh, perceive all that. But So it's not that we're trying to get to a state where we actually never perceive any of that and then just go around bumping into walls or anything like that. Obviously not. But um, something can be seen deep in meditation that exposes the unreality or the, the lack of inherent reality of all of that. And then that experience fades, but the understanding stays. So we can use doors, use this, talk about time, talk about self, but one has an understanding of its emptiness and it still appears. So that that's quite. Does that make sense? That that's really quite an important distinction. Sorry to interrupt. That's, it's more than just an intellectual understanding. Yeah, I will get to that too. Yeah, definitely. It's much more than an intellectual understanding. Embodied. Yes, but both are embodied. In other words, our default assumptions are embodied. They're not intellectual assumptions. And and what we want is the wisdom of the emptiness of it to also be embodied and not just intellectual. So, so we believe in moments. I believe in a present moment. I believe in a past and a future. I believe in objects, subject, etc. And that's what we call delusion. And that delusion is the seed, in, in Dharma I'm saying, that's the seeds of our suffering. That's the seed of Dukkha. And so it is important to actually go beyond concepts, but the point is to actually do it in a way that's really skillful and uh, thorough, true, deep. So, sometimes some interpretations of <coughs> teachings of emptiness and uh, madhyamaka. Has John used that word yet? Madhyamaka? No. no. Okay. It means middle way, is actually what it means. Madhyamaka, middle way. And it's taken as the sort of highest exposition of the teachings of emptiness. And some people's interpretation of that is what it's saying is it's a kind of radical skepticism. Any view you have is wrong. And uh, all views are bad. And sometimes people put it in other truths like right view is no view. Okay? And it's that kind of um, don't take up any view. The Buddha in the Pali Canon has right view in terms of the Four Noble Truths is actually right view. And if you go into the meaning of that more fully, uh, his sort of full explanation of what the Four Noble Truths are, 
not really hidden in that, but implicit in the second one, in his full explanation of what the second truth is, the causes and conditions for suffering is dependent arising and a non-understanding of emptiness. So even in the Buddha's right view, there's this kind of right seeing about uh, emptiness and dependent arising in, in the right view. So <clears throat> what part of the way we've been approaching things is actually learning to put on, to take up ways of viewing Right? when we do the anatta practice or, or whatever, we're actually learning ways of looking, ways of conceiving, ways of viewing, but ones that lead to freedom rather than a repeat of difficulty. Does, does, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we are taking up a view. Uh, there's two words in Sanskrit, dishti and darshana. Uh, I read recently that Nagarjuna was actually saying that Dirshti, which is a kind of views that don't lead to freedom, uh, kind of false views, is what's eradicated by emptiness. But darshna, as views that are helpful, uh, is actu- actually stays there. That we want. Um, so similar to the Buddha's teaching of a raft, it might be that we even go beyond, at some point, in some way, even beyond the view of emptiness, or beyond the view of anatta, etc., but it's the raft, that's the raft that takes us beyond. And similarly, in that right view, and people teach it differently, eventually, or right from the beginning, we want an understanding that emptiness also is not something inherently real. Remember, going back again some talks, said emptiness is actually an adjective. So as an adjective, it qualifies something, this thing, that thing is empty, and as such, it depends on that thing. The emptiness of this thing depends on that thing. It doesn't exist independently of that thing. <laughs> do, do you see? So emptiness is actually also empty. Mm. Emptiness is empty. Mm. So at some point, or right from the beginning, that needs to be in our, underst- in, in our view, in our view, in our right view. In Dzogchen teachings, so one of the strands of Tibetan Buddhism, some of you may have come across this, they talk about practicing the view or sustaining the view. And in a way, that's very similar to what we're doing uh, with the anatta practice, with the letting go of push and pull, etc. We're sustaining, use the word view loosely now, sustaining ways of seeing in the moment, ways of looking, ways of relating. And we're practicing that view. Um, uh, Impermanence, whatever it is, anatta, uh, because they lead to freedom. And, and what should happen is they unfold deeper and deeper freedom on one hand, and we'll get more and more into this, and deeper and deeper uh, understanding. And that deeper understanding can then become the sort of expanded or deeper view, which one then can look at via that view and go deeper and deeper into freedom. So that's why when I introduced the three characters, I said, this is your avenue, this is your tunnel, it will unfold. That's what I meant. This is the view... I trundle along with it, I have some freedom. It starts to expose other understandings. I then pick up those un- other understandings, there's a more powerful view, and so it goes, and so it goes. So, sometimes people hear teaching about emptiness and feel like, I have to let go of the self in one go. Actually impossible. Like, I, some, pr- uh, intellectual teaching has been presented about emptiness and somehow have to throw it all out. Not, not possible, not even a good idea. Um, or one 
and this is relatively common, uh, one gets hold of the wrong end of the stick and goes about trying to stamp out the self and kind of blot it out of existence somehow. Um, the, the way that I've been trying to introduce this is in a very gradual way, that we're learning a gradual practice. Uh, the, this views that we're taking up gradually deepen a sense of freedom and uh, deepen and deepen, etc., so we're also in that stamping out the self or whatever it might. We're not taking up a view of nihilism. <clears throat> and as I said also again in one other talk, it's like be careful of when aversion creeps into this practice. Actually, you're trying to stamp out the self, eradicate it, or eradicate experience. What's happened is aversion has got hold of the practice. And, and aversion is actually in the driving seat in that moment. So when I used that word in the talk on three characteristics, I said holy disinterest, a phrase from the Christian mystics. The emphasis is on the holy. There's some, something in the letting go that's not a rejection, that's not a disconnection, that's not a disembodiment, that's not a, a disgust, that's not a uh, heartless nihilism, cold aversion, etc. So on that point, side, side issue, ch- check check if this creeps in at times. And more generally, check if, as I said in the opening talk, how's the love doing? How's the appreciation doing? How's the contentment doing? So we, need, we really need to take care of these qualities on, on a retreat, on any retreat, on any long retreat certainly, and certainly on a retreat like this. And just to, to check in and notice. And uh, different people at different times will really need to um, really take care to balance the emptiness practices with loving kindness and uh, some, the well-being of samadhi. And really, last year I felt like I wanted to graffiti the wall with huge capital letters of samadhi and metta uh, because it felt like so important to to uh, address that balance. Um, but needs needs to check. We need, as I said in the open talk, to be nourishing, nourishing the well-being, and really taking care of that. So in response to what Nick just said, the problem is not, the problem of delusion is not an intellectual problem. We feel it, as I said last night, on a gut level. It's a gut level problem. It's not an intellectual problem that we have. And if I only approach it intellectually and not meditatively deeply enough, it won't really transform anything. Again, I will, I'll have the right, uh, you know, teacher will tick correct, uh, but so what? It hasn't actually transformed something and brought freedom deeply. And again, the default views are what will reign, what will actually be in the driving seat. So again, I've said it before, but we're practicing practicing shifts in view, shifts in the way we're relating to experience unfolding. We're actually practicing those shifts through the anatta, through letting go of clinging, through also the practice I introduced last night, the sevenfold reasoning. And that unfolds deeper and deeper, freedom deeper and deeper understanding. So, for example, and this came up uh, in interviews today and also in Q&A during the talk last night, this sense of oneness, that consciousness would be so beautiful, precious, that consciousness can open to a sense of oneness sometimes in deep meditation or other, other areas. Now, sometimes John might say or I might say or you might read, it's like, emptiness is not oneness, that's wrong. And a person kind of feels like bereft or something. Uh, certainly the way I would like to emphasize is actually, if you tell me about oneness, I would like to say, repeat that. Can you do that again? Can you get that again? 
Can you feel that oneness again? Can you have access to it and, and let that uh, soak into your heart and the cells of your body? Over and over and over and over and over. Get to know that oneness. Um, that would actually be my, my approach in teaching. Um, what happens if the mind goes in and out of a perception of oneness? Oneness, normality. Oneness, normality. Oneness, normality. Eventually, the default view of separateness actually gets really questioned. A one-off experience of oneness probably not going to do much. But you go into it, I don't know how many times, and you start to wonder, well, hey, which is real? Is it separation that's real, or is it oneness that's real? And, and on a really deep level, the heart really starts wondering. So it starts shifting and questioning the default belief in separateness. And that's extremely significant, because without this nurturing of, I'm just taking oneness as an example, that nurturing of a shift of view, we will just revert to the old default views, which are not as helpful. The default view of separation is not as helpful. So, and again, I've said this before, but emptiness is not a disappointment. It's not a teaching of disappointment. It, and if it feels like that, um, I, I would feel that someone needs to kind of reassess or rebalance how they're going about it. It's not a teaching of disappointment. In terms of, I'm just taking oneness as an example, if that's the experience, then I would, I, I would never want to take that away from anyone at all. I would wish everyone could have that. But I would also say, you know what? There's something even more lovely that you can have as well, beyond that. So, this seeing of emptiness, this practicing of a shift in view, we want to repeat and see over and over and over. We need to see emptiness over and over and over and repeat that for it to make a difference. And at first it might not feel so powerful. You might have a glimpse of something or practice feels like it's when it doesn't actually feel like a big deal. Uh, We have a deep habit of not seeing emptiness. That's basically what delusion is, a deep habit of seeing inherent existence. And we need to practice seeing in a different way. Um, I mentioned this before. Sometimes when we use the mind in a sort of reflective way or a conceptual way, what can happen is the heart closes. I'm sure probably everyone's noticed this. Why is that, and does it need to? Does it need to? Is it necessary that the heart closes when there's uh, the mind is, is thinking and engaged in reflective thought? Um, you know, we have... Uh, intuitions, and we have movements of the heart that seem to be saying this or that, and we have um, the possibility of being pulled, but also the possibility that we have predecided things, that, that truths have been predecided in us. So the, the Buddha says that this is the uh, Sutta Nipata, chapter 4, number 3. How could one, led on by desire, entrenched in his likes, forming his own conclusions, overcome his own views. How could one, led on by desire, entrenched in his likes, forming his own conclusions, overcome his own views? 
entrenchments in views aren't easily overcome. Entrenchments in views aren't easily overcome. A person, this is significant, a person embraces or rejects a doctrine, a teaching, in light of these very entrenchments. Do you understand what he's saying? So we're listening to all this through those very filters of preconceptions, preconditions, deciding, likes, dislikes, all of which can feel very heartful and very intuitive. <clears throat> there are reasons why the Buddha was really unsure about teaching all this stuff. Really unsure. Um, nowadays, it's interesting too, the whole notion of truth is very objectionable to a lot of people. And if you give truth a capital T, people say, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Uh, and people much rather speak about my truth. We can speak about my truth and your truth. And we can speak about, maybe even more safer, your opinion and my opinion, your view and my view. Um, or sometimes people say, it's all equally valid. Any, any opinions are equally valid. And uh, you know, maybe there's reasons, for, good reasons for that, in terms of humanity's history of religious oppression and scientific oppression, all kinds of stuff, and the brutality of all that. It's postmodernism, isn't it, really? It's what? Postmodernism. Uh, I was going to say it has it has part of its roots in postmodernism. Yeah. Self-indulgence. Yeah. Um, but without realizing, again, we take so much as truth all the time, as as things like as I was saying the self, things, time, space, all that, and all also a whole manner of social conventions that we just bought into. So there was a quote. Uh, the Samadhi Rajasu, I can't remember which talk I gave it in, but if the selflessness, if the emptiness of phenomena is analyzed, and if this an analysis is cultivated in meditation, it causes the effect of attaining nirvana. This is the line I wanted to draw attention to. Through no other cause does one come to peace. It's a pretty dogmatic statement that's there. Um, and a lot of people would take offense at that. And again, there can be a kind of sense of, well, all paths are leading up to the same mountaintop. They're just different paths up the mountain. Um, and everyone has their own path, etc. But this can be taken, again, I encounter, it can be taken too much to an extreme. So a while ago, I don't remember when it was, I was invited to a sitting group to facilitate a Dharma discussion. I can't actually remember what it was about, but what I walked away with, uh, somehow we got onto... It was something about what makes a path a path, what makes a path a spiritual path. And uh, people were saying, well, it can be dancing or juggling or... Uh, and then, and then and this was like, anything can be a spiritual path. And someone at one point says, even murdering might be your spiritual path. And... Uh, what's that? No. And... Um, <laughs> I have, I have some difficulties with <laughs> you know, this. There's, some, there's an excessive attachment to sort of not stating anything that might be exclusive or, or say that this is true or, or something else isn't true. Um, that what, what's going to happen? That we're going to lose our individual freedom or something? Um, so there's, there's some you know, really important capacity of humans to boldly question and someone says something like, well, actually, what about them? Or something we've been so used to, either from our own tradition or from societal convention, to really question that, bring our, our yeah, courage and boldness to question it. But sometimes there's just a lack of integrity as well. And to say murdering can be a path, is that maybe I'm just not bringing my integrity there. Do they really believe that? 
it certainly seemed like it at the time. It was quite it was quite a heated discussion. I was uh, I don't think they wanted me uh, to be so much in a teacher role. So um, I didn't realize that until sort of reflecting afterwards. But it, so I was kind of put, leading people with questions and maybe offering a counter opinion, and it really felt like it wasn't welcomed at all. But um, uh, there is always ethics. There is always ethics, exactly. And um, there also a prison down the road. There is, <laughs> yes, yes. Which for a long time, uh, when I was on silent retreat for many years, I was always convinced was a, a, a missile silo. I don't know why. Uh, either way, questioning the ethics. But, I mean, but, um, there is ethics. Yes, there is ethics. And, and um, the Buddha talks about, at stream entry, when there's a very deep understanding of emptiness, and that one's actually seen something very deep, doubt goes. Confusion about what one needs for awakening goes. And so it's very clear, ethics is part of that. Ethics is part of that and doesn't really get abandoned. Um, and one can re- reach a point of clarity, and people might object to that, etc., but it's there. Also something happened here, and I can't, again, I can't remember when, where this was, but I, see, as a teacher I run into this all the time, and so people uh, object and get angry with something I've said or something someone else has said. And, and there was a retreatant who... Uh, very much in in the realm of no view is right uh, and and you should abandon all views. And when he left the Hermitage Wing, as some people sometimes do, he wrote a little note leaving the yogis and he said something like, um, we are fellow stumblers in the dark. And something like, I hope we together uh, continue stumbling and falling. Or something like that. And... um, it felt like, again, and through conversations with him, that there was this attachment to, like, there is no possibility of knowing anything or a, a right view and a wrong view. And, and quite, in, in his case, quite a lot of um, emotional attachment to that. So, I know that I don't know uh, may be important, but that's not the limit of human possibility. It's not the limit, and certainly the, the, certainly the, the Buddha, you'd be hard-pressed to find the Buddha saying that. Uh, and as I said again in one of the talks, the most important thing is if there is a God, if there is a soul, blah, 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 is that it lacks inherent existence. And that we can know. That we can know. And know for sure. Uh, so, without, this is a quote from someone called Dharmakirti, who's also a very important um, early Mahayana philosopher, without disbelieving the object of our misconception, it is impossible to abandon misconceiving it. And this just repeats what I've said before. We actually need to penetrate uh, the belief that we have and the way that we're conceiving, and not just kind of not go there. Penetrate our delusions. Penetrate our delusions and really pierce them and cut them, yes. And expose them for what they are and see in a different way. So what what can we know and what do we need to know? We need to know the emptiness of things, of all things, and their lack of inherent existence, all of which is another way of saying they're dependent arising. Uh, I came. I was reading a, a great book uh, the other day, and um, I just realised I missed a whole section out, but it's probably fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
empty. It's definitely empty, yeah. yeah it doesn't matter. I was going to read you something that I just thought... I'll just throw it in now. It might feel random at this point. But I, I mentioned there was a list of seven... Um, I, I don't know where this is from, but it's a list of seven factors that starve wisdom or uh, give rise to confusion. I'm just going to throw this out there and not even comment on it. Number one, keeping bad company. <laughs> Number two, laziness. Number three, lack of curiosity or incuriosity. Uh, number four, distaste for analysis. Not liking using the mind to uh, pull things apart. Uh, number five, we touched on yesterday, thinking you already know things and thus do not need to study or analyze. Uh, number six, being influenced by wrong philosophical views. And number seven, we also mentioned yesterday, being influenced by thoughts such as someone like me could never understand this and believing that. So I just throw that out and I won't comment on it. But um, The thing I was going to say was I was reading this book uh, and uh, I can't remember where, if it was in the introduction or whatever. And um, it was actually a book on Zogchen philosophy. And, um, and, and the author, that I think is French or English, he said, I'm just going to read this quote. Generally speaking, in Buddhism, the possibility of freedom is predicated on the possibility, it means, depends on the possibility of enlightenment. And enlightenment is predicated on the possibility of knowing ultimate reality. So to know what is ultimately true or real is to be enlightened and free. And he says, in this respect, all traditions of Buddhism are essentially in agreement. I found that extremely interesting, partly because, A, the, all those words, freedom, Buddhism, freedom, uh, enlightenment, ultimate reality, uh, all that, uh, mean very different things to very different people and different traditions. But even more significantly, um, what I see now in terms of Western Dharma is, and I'm sure even ev not everyone in this room would agree with that statement, it's no longer a given in Dharma circles. Pe I've run into a lot of people who don't believe in the possibility of awakening um, for different reasons, or don't believe that there is an ultimate reality, or don't believe in all, all kinds of things. That Western Dharma is taking a very, uh, very interesting direction. And again, don't want to go into this, partly it's the way that the Dharma has come to the West through the different traditions, but also it has to do with this inner critic thing uh, that we mentioned way back. Sometimes if that's too strong, can't bear the thought of some big goal. It's too painful. Because I measure myself in relationship to it. And so uh, let's just talk, and, and teachers will find themselves doing, just, just talk about this moment. And just being okay in this moment. Uh, because the pain of that, and then me in relationship to that, is too much. And interestingly, then a whole, kind of what was sort of edifice, root edifice of Dharma teachings actually gets... Uh, changed. And I see this going on as the Dharma is taking birth in the West. But I just find it interesting in relationship to what we're talking about. Can I just ask something? Um, you said something about... What's to be expected? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. Japan, so yeah. it has to find its... Like, they talk a lot about what's the face uh, of the Western Buddha. Of course, of course. So it's not that it shouldn't change. It's it's like we were talking about with aspirations. It's not that our aspirations maybe don't change sometimes. It's that are we conscious of the forces that are shaping them? And are they forces that are, you know, that it's important to reckon with? Or are they actually 
hmm, we've actually lost something for not such a good reason there. That's that, So, this probably isn't coming across, but really what I'm wanting to do tonight is just throw all this up in the air. It's like, look at all this. This is all going on without uh, necessarily it's landing too much. Emphasis on the pop, the pop psychology part of this now, the dumbing of it. Is it is it kind of like becomes, you know, you pick up any magazine and there is something about mindfulness. Is yeah. It, is it kind of that may be part of it. Part I, of I'd actually not really want don't want to so much go into it right now yeah, if that's I, okay. I'm just but curious if there's a lot of factors going on. Some of which which are really lovely and important. You know, the meeting of psychotherapy and dharma I think is really important and interesting. Um, so it's not that, but it, it's bad that the Dharma transforms when it comes, you know, it transformed radically when it went to China and uh, etc. and all that. But um, it's just, just kind of being aware of what forces are operating, I think. Um, again, I'm quite concerned about time. So it's quite a quick question. You said something about um, if there was a god or a soul, it would be um, subject to dependent origination. Yeah. Uh, remember, you used this word ultimate reality. Yeah. Um, in a way which made me think you actually meant it. Meant what? Um, the word ultimate reality, like a reality which wasn't yeah. dependently originated. Yeah. Um, we'll get to this much more fully, but I, what I mean is the ultimate reality th- of things is that they're empty. Okay. Dependently originated. Let's right. say that. I will revisit this concept much later. At this point, it would just be confusing. So yeah, it, yeah. T- towards the end, we'll revisit that. Uh, but, yeah. but that's basically what was meant. Is the ultimate reality of things is that they're empty or dependently arising. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so, y- you know, this knowing and what can I know and what's it important to know. There is, you know, there is, as someone was saying, there's a mystery in life. Our existence is mystery. And there's beauty in that when the heart opens to that and the consciousness opens to that sense of mystery. And to me it's an extremely uh, important part of, of consciousness deepening and growing and practice. And uh, to be touched by that. And touched by, we don't know, some, you know what, how did we get, how did all this happen? But even not even a thinking mystery, it's just a palpable sense of mystery. It actually doesn't have, it's like something specific I'm wondering about. Um, and some degree of opening to that, or opening to that, I feel is very important. And I used to, uh, when I first started teaching, emphasize it really, really a lot. But uh, I think, although I feel it's really important, I also question how much freedom can be got just from that, just from a sense of mystery. So the Buddha talks about a very, very commonly quoted phrase, knowledge and vision of things as they are. Knowledge and vision of things as they are. But that things as they are is not what we're talking about right at the beginning, the bare attention of things. This is like this. This this emotion feels like this. This is how it is. It doesn't mean that. It means things as they are. How is as they are is empty and dependently arisen. So that again is saying something much deeper than as at first uh, obvious. It's not pointing to bare attention. So, so far, what do we know on, the, on this retreat? So far, what have we touched? We've talked about this spectrum of self-sense, and I think everyone's hopefully beginning to get some sense of that, of, of how the sense of self moves. It's stronger, more built up, less built up, etc. <laughs> yes? Yes, good. Um, <laughs> um, we will expand this and actually say the uh, 
we will expand this and actually say the world of experience is similar. I haven't gone into it yet, but we will. The world of experience is also something that's on a spectrum, built up or or less built up. Really, really. So self and the world built up, and they go with clinging. The self sense, as we've said, goes with clinging. And I asked you one time if a lot of clinging brings a very solid self sense, a little less, a little less, a little less brings a little less, a little less, etc., all the way down. How much clinging reveals the real sense of self? Now, we could take a question like this and say, well, it's unknowable, it's not knowable. But actually, that's not the conclusion. The conclusion should be, A, that the self, and later we'll talk about the world of experience, are dependently arisen. That's the conclusion we want, not the unknowability of what the real self is. Do you understand? No? If I see that the sense of self is dependent on clinging, the more I cling, the stronger the sense of self, the more built up it is. If it's papancha, there's a big self. No papancha, less self. Uh, less clinging, less self. Even less clinging, even less self. Does, does, yeah. Um, the and then I say, well, which is the real self of all those? Which is the real one? The really solid one, the personality one, the psychological one, the the kind of bare bones one, the one of that feels like just a process, the one that even the process doesn't seem. Which is the real one? Now the answer could be, well, the re it's unknowable, but actually the answer should be that it's dependently arisen. There's something very clear. Rather than a perplexity there, it's actually a clarity about its dependent arising. Self, and later we'll say the world, are dependently arisen. They're dependent on clinging. Isn't that the same as saying they were processed? Um, yeah, but again, uh, what we'll see... We'll, yeah, what we'll see is the elements of that process, too, don't exist. So you can't talk about an inherently existing, existing process. But that's all part of the spectrum. We'll, we'll get to that. Does the fully awakened person experience that spectrum of self? Well, not fully awakened, but an awakened person. Yeah, so, well, yeah, does a fully awakened person experience that spectrum of self? Yeah, so, interesting question. You'll get different answers from different traditions. Um, if we just take the Pali Canon, the Buddha talking about his experience, he would go uh, into, can go into experiences of total emptiness. Nothing is occurring. Everything's just empty. Everything just stops. And he can dwell in that and hang out in that. And then he comes out in, uh, in a state of uh, you know, dealing with existence and doors, as, as Bruce is, and all that. And, um, but his, he would know that his self is empty. And, that would, that would. and so there would be a whole range of self-building that would just be cut off from his range. You would not expect a Buddha who goes into Papancha and kind of big self-critic uh, stuff is, is <laughs> <laughs> that that bit gets chopped off you know but for, for those who might aspire to you know have slightly less suffering but not necessarily believe they're going to yeah, get yeah. Mm -hmm. to be a buddha yeah do, do they so you still experience levels of self yeah. but you just don't attach the suffering to it i would still say i would say both i would say that as practice deepens and it reaches kind of uh, what's the word? Um, points of the understanding kind of precipitating shifts, you know, um, or just generally moving on spectrum. Um, two things happen. One is uh, that still some some end of the of the spectrum of self just go, goes. It can't arise anymore. It just will not arise like that anymore. Um, 
you know, the inner critic thing it just doesn't arise anymore. It's just not. It's, it doesn't. There aren't the conditions remaining for that. One's seen enough with wisdom that that structure of self, or very heavy, dense, it just cannot arise. And no matter, it just can't. The conditions aren't there. So it's almost like you could say the more wisdom, the more you're chopping off of that un unhappy, solid end of the spectrum. You could say that. But you're also saying that the more, perhaps we should say, the more, sen- the more time you have of a sense of the rest of it being empty. In other words, the more time you, you spend in moving in the rest of it, but knowing that it's empty. Yeah? Okay. Uh, so, we want to know, the conclusion is that self and later the world are dependent arising, but also how. How. So, it's uh, clear that um, things, you know, the self sense arises, gets stronger, ceases, dependent on what? And that dependent on what is what we're really going to fill out on this retreat. How does exactly this sense of self, uh, how do I, I can, I can, if I have enough seeing here, enough skill, I can actually see how to build it and how to stop building it. And I, I can deliberately move on that spectrum. And, and the how of that is actually very important. And in that, uh, the, the suffering decreases, of course. So, in this question of what's real, and the sense of do we know, the Buddha talks about, and, and again, this is from the Pali Canon, he's talking to someone called Kachayana, and he says, most, most people talk or see things in terms of it exists or it doesn't exist. As I teach the middle way, beyond <laughs> concepts of existing and not existing, and that I call the middle way. Uh, and it's avoiding these extremes of reifying something or, uh, or, or nihilism, saying it doesn't exist, the self doesn't exist, the thing doesn't exist. Um, we will revisit this question uh, much more. So, sometime, I'm almost done, but sometimes, uh, as meditators, of course, in the course of a retreat or otherwise, we have experiences, we have meditative openings, or even outside of meditation, something happens, and it's a it's a shift, and it's really important not to chase those experiences. You know, and you've heard this from countless teachers. It's really important not to chase the experience, but it's also important not to dismiss them. It's really important not to dismiss our experiences, our meditative experiences. Sometimes, in the depth of what's going on here, or in the quietness, or in the days, the nights, changes in perception happen. You know, different people. Loads of things are possible for the for the meditative mind, for the contemplative mind. Someone, this is the ordinary reality. Something shifts, and suddenly one experiences the nature of reality is is infinite love, and we are all moving in infinite love. That's one possibility of a shift in perception, or I mean, countless countless possibilities. Could you give an example of what chasing an experience might look like? Yeah, saying, I had this experience uh, I had this experience a year ago, and I've no idea how I got there, but I wa- I'm really wanting to get it back now. Okay. Um, the very fact of perceptions changing points to their emptiness. Because again, person going in and out, and I'm just choosing another perception that can change, oneness or this or that, person going in and out of this sense of the whole fabric of the universe is love. That actually is the deeper fabric. This is a mystical perception that people can get in, in meditation or outside of it. And going in and out, of, and, and we'll begin to wonder, which is the real one? Is that actually, in a deeper way, more true? 
profoundly touching their heart and opening opening consciousness. And that points to the emptiness there. There's something about understanding how we fabricate and build the sense of reality and what we experience. And that's what we're going to be going into. I remember the Dalai Lama saying, I was talking yesterday about this possibility of water mixing with water and sort of going so deep into emptiness that there's nothing left but emptiness completely. And it's called a direct cognition of emptiness in technical language. And it's very non-dual. There isn't a mind and emptiness. It's all just fused. And he says, it's true that that's inexpressible in words, that experience. But that inexpressibility in words of the experience does not mean that emptiness can't be reflected on conceptually. Okay? So arriving at somewhere non-conceptually doesn't rule out the power and the usefulness of conceptuality in relating to things. I'm going to throw something out now, and it's, it's a bit of a preview to finish with. So John and I will be talking a lot about dependent arising. Dependent arising, and or dependent origination, is a teaching that can be understood and explored at lots of different levels. So there's a kind of psychological level of it. It's really important to get into that level and understand it at that level. But again, it's a spectrum. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And in a way, talking about dependent arising, it's a set of concepts that the Buddha's using. There were actually, interestingly, concepts around at the time and he just took those concepts that were in the current vernacular and kind of redefined things and rejigged things a little bit. So he's taking these concepts, but actually it turns out that this wheel of dependent origination, I think John's already started talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. First two. Good. Okay, well, it's actually, in the deeper understanding of it, it's not something linear in time. It's actually not a process that's happening in time. And it's unfortunate in the way it gets translated, because that's how it reads. First there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, and this. And there's a level at which that's true, but it's actually something that's happening, uh, not even, it's not even that it's happening very fast, like so fast that you can't see it. It's actually not in time. Um, when we talk about dependent rising, means that things are mutually dependent. So not only does this give a rise to that, but that gives rise to this in the same moment. Something is pointing to something extremely radical, extremely radical, that the mind can just about approach, but not quite fully get its head around, so to speak. Um, so, for example, uh, it's just mutual dependency. Where there's clinging, we've said, there'll be more self. So self depends on clinging. But guess what? Where there's self, what shows up? <laughs> what goes with clinging? They feed each other. They're mutually dependent. Um, it turns out that time, I'll revisit this much later in the retreat, time and the very elements of this process of dependent arising, the very concepts of dependent arising, are also empty. They are also empty. They're not actually real, discrete, real things. It's helpful to look at them that way at first, but it's, it's not a process of dis- real things that is happening in time, which is what the initial understanding would be. Time as well is a dependent arising. And the very, uh, you know, things, consciousness, ignorance, etc., all that, too, are empty of inherent existence. So, again, I've said this before, if I don't... Uh, if I don't explicitly understand that or make that clear to myself, there will be something I'm rarefying, and I can pretty much safely assume that. I, I can, that's the default way that the mind works. However, similar to the oneness, similar to the 
big laugh, similar to everything else, still having a concept of dependent rising as happening in time like that, real things happening in real time, um, is still enormously helpful as a stepping stone. There's still a real degree of freedom there. So we cannot jump to this complete non-conceptuality. The, the amazing skill of the Buddha's teaching is that he takes these concepts, he says, take this concept, that concept, and I present them in this way, and they're concepts that lead beyond concepts. Uh, incredibly, uh, the more, more I get into it, just see the genius of it. They're, they're the set of concepts and way of using concepts. Actually, it's like the image I use is a snake eating its own tail and eventually swallowing itself. And, and the, the deep contemplation of dependent rising emptiness is, is the same as that. Uh, it's just, it begins to, the contemplation of dependent rising actually begins to eat the concept of dependent rising itself. Say it again. Self can be a dependent arising of your own awakening. I don't understand. What does that mean? As in, if you look at it in a non-linear time sense, mm-hmm. the fact that you're suffering in yourself is okay because it's all part of the circle. Yeah, good, good. Did everyone hear that? No. Um, so, April saying. So in a way, then, if everything's part of the circle, even the suffering of self is part of the circle and kind of makes it okay. It's just, it's just what's part of the circle. Um, there's a, a level, again, that's a really, really important stepping stone. With that, that, for a lot of people, that realization that you've just voiced um, becomes really powerful as it uh, opens up a lot of freedom. It's like, and I was just talking with someone the other day who's been uh, you know, long-term meditating. It's just, ah, it's okay that I'm feeling this. It doesn't mean anything other than it's just the wheel going round. That's all it is. And a lot of freedom there. I wouldn't, again, call it the final arriving point, but re- for, not for everyone, but for many people, really, really significant. Yeah, very significant. So instead of like making this polarity of there's suffering and then there's less suffering and then and actually and keep trying to hold on to the less suffering or a state or etc. One just sees, well, this is just dependent arising doing its thing. And it's like, ah, oh. self arises, self gets less, no self arises, self, no self, self, no self. Ah, oh, it's all fine. Really, really important, very liberating to many people, but not the final. Because it's not that it's like a... I don't have a tendency to sort of judge where I am on a particular day or yeah. month or whatever, yeah. and, and because that's what we're, we're taught to yes. see with education, mm-hmm. you get better and better and better and better. Mm-hmm. But if you don't look at it in a time linear sense, you don't see total ignorance and total awakening. You see it yes. as a as a wave happening all the time, yeah. and you're dipping into yeah. either end yeah. of the spectrum. So if that feels like there's some liberation in you for that, go with it, amplify it, you know, dwell, dwell on it, bring it in more and more to wh- how you're seeing your own experience unfolding. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, all this business of depenerizing being something so deep, which we'll get into, uh, that it eats itself, so to speak, uh, Hard to understand, hard to understand. But the Buddha is this Majjhima Nikaya 72 18. Uh, the Buddha's talking to a, a, a seeker called Vacha. And he says, Deep, deep Vacha is this Dhamma, this, this truth, this teaching. Hard to see, hard to realize, peaceful and refined, beyond the scope of conjecture, subtle to be experienced by the wise. For those with other views, other practices, other satisfactions, other aims, 
other teachers, it is difficult to know. He's pointing to something, well, difficult to know, as he says. But all this business, this uh, using of conceptuality at times in the practice to go beyond, to unearth it, um, it moves to a place that actually, the, or and even in the process, the heart can be very involved in that. The heart is very touched. Its natural outflow, to, to me, is a bowing. Is a bowing. It naturally leads to this kind of veneration, deep veneration, uh, profound reverence. I'm not even clear what exactly it's to, maybe, but there's bowing that comes out of it. So it's not leading to nihilism. It's not leading to stuck in conceptuality or anything like that. Something immensely beautiful at the heart comes out of it. It comes out of uh, understanding emptiness more and more, and and this this uh, the radicality of it, the fullness of it. Almost a reverence. It is a reverence, absolutely. Total. So sometimes when people first hear about emptiness, they f- the fear is, well, that means everything's meaningless. It means everything's pointless. Uh, f- to me, it's completely the opposite. There's such a... But it's not specific. You can say what you're... It's just in the mystery of that and the, and the way it all eats itself and uh, something extremely beautiful in the way the heart's touched and, and very, very deep. Oh, would you say like devotion? Yes, devotion comes out of it. Yeah, I would say. I would say. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Rob, I have a question. Pretty quick one. I just, um, how um, how much emphasis do you think we should place on um, expanding the amount of sitting time? I'm sort of finding that, I mean, it's not not sort of feeling particularly... um, intuitive to do that yeah. I'm just wondering if I should sort of just yeah. try and sort of push that boundary yeah. or just mm-hmm. you know, be comfortable with what's happening okay could everyone hear that yeah um, if it's not happening uh, naturally just leave it mm-hmm. be with what's comfortable um, in its time it will as you know already from yeah. past treats it will organically happen it's causes and conditions when they're there it will however I would add occasionally you might want to like I was saying was it yesterday uh, stre- uh, the day before uh, stretch yourself sometimes. So it's more like, hey, it doesn't feel like it's going quite well. It feels like there's some dukkha. I'm just going to sit with it. Yeah. And, and here the pain comes in the body, here the restlessness comes, and just stretch the edges occasionally, maybe once a day or something. And the rest of the, the rest of it can unfold. And it might be even that that stretching sometimes actually opens something up yeah. and, it, and it starts the unfoldment of organically, without any pressure, just we want to sit longer. So really not a big deal. And, you know, short sittings can be very... Uh, and I'm talking even really short, you know, maybe all of you know, you're out walking and you just stop by a fence and you look at the grass and the light on the grass and something in two seconds uh, touches you way deeper than, you know, the three-hour sitting that you're hobbling away from. (laughs) Um, So uh, long sittings, sure, an important part of practice, but really can be overrated at times. So let it it unfold and, and play your edges too. Okay, let's have a bit of quiet together.